jump right in. So uh, why don't you open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Um, we've been going through the book of Ephesians for quite a while, since around uh, January. And the uh, past several weeks, uh, if you're new here, we've been going through a little section in chapter 6 where Paul begins to introduce the subject matter of spiritual warfare. And uh, we've been taking some time to really kind of unpack that. If you guys don't have a Bible, why don't you raise your hand real high and we'll have someone get you a Bible. And uh, you guys can keep it if you don't currently own one. Um, but we've been focusing on the subject matter of spiritual warfare. One of the things we've been saying about spiritual warfare is that um, we live in a physical world, obviously, and uh, we touch, feel, taste, uh, we interact, we communicate, we talk, we hear. All of these things are part and parcel of what it means to be human. And yet what we're told is that this human humanity in which we live in is, is broken. It's, it's filled with sin. It's marred by sin, if you would. And yet what the hope of the gospel is, is that God has come into this world to undo that brokenness, to bring healing into those areas that are filled or riddled with brokenness and prone to decay and corruption. And this is the good news, that God has not forsaken us. This is the good news, that God has not forsaken you. You need to, to hear that, to know that. It's one of the reasons why the good news is good, is that we live in this world, in this culture, in this universe in which we feel alone, we feel lost. We feel forsaken and abandoned, but the good news is that we're not. You're really, truly not, that God is up to doing good things in your life. And yet, at the end of the day, uh, what Paul tells us is that in the midst of God doing good things in our lives, uh, bringing restoration, bringing healing, reordering our chaos, is a demonic spiritual force that's at work trying to undermine every good thing that God is up to doing. And so, these demonic forces uh, that are trying to undo and undermine what God is trying to do, uh, Paul describes it as the devil, and that this devil has schemes or methods by which he employs to basically destroy every good thing that God is up to within your life. So if you imagine it this way, God wants to bring order to your chaos, and at the end of the day, what we have is the devil trying to bring disorder back to the chaos. So in other words, if you're a Christian, you found your life being reordered, God bringing healing, um, you oftentimes can find that there are demonic activities or forces at work. You may or not, may not have identified them as demonic or whatnot, but what Paul describes is that these forces are trying to undo and destroy or sabotage everything good in your life. And if you've been through your life feeling as if it's been sabotaged, well, what the Bible describes is that behind Everything that is being sabotaged in our life is some form of spiritual influence or dark spiritual influence. Or if you want to put it this way, forces of anti-creation are trying to undo the forces of creation. Does that make sense? So what I want to do right now is I want to begin to take a look at some of the ways in which Paul unpacks this for us and then begins to inform us and then begin to take a look at some ways in which we can see God wanting to uh, bring some work. Is it, is it just me? Is it sounding a little bit tinny? It's tinny. Is my mic too low? Do I need to raise it? I don't want you guys to not really dislike hearing my voice. So is that a little bit better? Yeah. A little bit better. Okay. Um, so I want to read a handful of passages to you guys, and uh, they'll be up on the screen. We'll take a look at Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 1, so uh, even though we've been going through the book of Ephesians, kind of what we've been doing in the past several weeks is we've taken the subject, if you would, of spiritual battle or spiritual warfare and have begun to sort of follow the subject or the theme of spiritual warfare throughout the Bible. So it's one of the reasons why we've, uh, even though we've been in Ephesians, 
we've kind of ventured out of Ephesians into all sorts of different areas because we're trying to take a look at this larger theme of spiritual warfare. And then uh, we will eventually make our way back to the book of Ephesians, finish up the book of Ephesians, and we'll be actually done with this great book that we've been looking at for uh, a really long time. So we'll take a look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. Then we'll jump in and take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. Then we'll look at James 4, 7, and then 1 Peter 5, verses 8 through 9. Each one of these have to do with the subject of spiritual warfare. So I'll read them. Uh, Ephesians 6, verse 11 says this. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Uh, the word schemes that we've been saying here over the past several weeks is the, we get the English word method from or methodia. Um, it basically describes the devil has certain various methods by which he seeks to um, undo every good thing within your life. So Paul says, I don't want you to be, um, you know, overtaken or undone by these things. I want you to stand firm in the midst of these various onslaughts of spiritual undoing. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, also written by Paul the Apostle, and here's what he wrote. He says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, uh, we for we are not ignorant of his designs. And so what Paul is basically saying is that I'm not ignorant of God's, uh, or the devil's designs, and I don't want you, as he's writing to these people, I don't want you to be ignorant of these designs, um, of the schemes of the devil. We'll actually come back to that passage in a moment here. But again, the implication is, uh, the, the, the tendency is for us to be ignorant of the various schemes that the devil employs to undo God's good work in our lives. Um, James chapter 4, verse 7, this was written by Jesus' half-brother. James wrote this, and he said, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So he gives his command, resist the devil. Don't play around with him. Don't mess with him. Don't talk to him. The idea here is that we are to resist, to turn away from, to not spend time trying to, uh, you know, uh, I mean, there's, there's a sense of understanding your enemy, but there's uh, also attention on the other end is to be over-dramatically uh, focused on the effects or the impact of the devil. So really what James is saying is uh, deny or d- uh, turn away from or resist the devil and he will flee from you. And then 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 9, uh, Peter, most of you guys know who Peter is, one of the leaders of the early church. He wrote, it says, be sober-minded. Be watchful, for your adversary the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And then he finishes with the command to resist him. So I think what you'll find in all three biblical writers, Paul, James, Peter, um, even though they had a variety of different ministries, uh, there was a uniformity within their understanding of this thing that we would call spiritual warfare. That there are spiritual, demonic forces at work that we oftentimes have the propensity to overlook or to not think about or not be aware of. So in other words, what we oftentimes find in our lives is we find that we are people that rather than standing strong, the way Paul urges us, we find ourselves lying vulnerable and weak on our backs, tapping out to the schemes of the devil. And that we oftentimes, the way Paul also admonishes, we find ourselves outwitted um, and ignorant of the very schemes of the devil. And the way Peter describes is that rather than uh, resisting the devil, or I should say James, we find ourselves submitting to the various influences of the devil. Now, most of us, not willingly, I mean, a Christian is not going to say, I, you know, willfully submit my intentions, my heart to the influence of the devil. Nobody does that, of course. 
uh, especially a person that's following Jesus. They don't want to do that. But at the same time, there are, are those tendencies in which we are influenced by the devil. And the reason why is oftentimes is because we are ignorant to it. We, um, sub, rather than submitting to God, we're submitting to oftentimes other influences that are tainted or corrupted. And that oftentimes, rather than being watchful and expectant um, to and toward the devil that's described or defined as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, kind of the implication is, or the picture is, if you were to kind of transpose this into the humanity, um, like Satan is the ultimate next-door neighbor creepy stalker, all right? He's the guy that's like constantly lurking on your Facebook feed and, you know, posting stuff on your wall anonymously. And you're like, who is this creeper? It's like, that's Satan, all right? It's like, it's like somebody trying to undo and destroy you or unnerve you. And this is who Satan is. He is like the ultimate stalker who is looking for opportunity and occasion to trick you, to trap you, to destroy you, to crush you, to oppress you. This is what the Bible is describing. And so the question that I would have for all of us is, are we aware of these various forms of demonic attack? I mean, if you're like me, the tendency is, no, we're not. We're really not. We oftentimes fall prey to these various devices. We oftentimes think that it's something else. Sometimes we are prone to even personify it. And we say, well, no, the real problem in my life is, you know, the one that I'm married to. Or the real problem in my life who's causing me the greatest stress and struggle. In other words, if you remove my roommate, everything would be fine. And the reality is, is that behind, perhaps, the actions that are kind of causing sparks to fly between you and your spouse, or causing sparks to fly between you and your boyfriend, girlfriend, or your roommate, or so on and so forth, oftentimes bear uh, some form of influence from demonic activity. And the aim, again, is your undoing. Are you aware of that? Do you know that? Or... Like what Paul admonishes not to be, are we just simply ignorant? Are we not aware, and we oftentimes fall prey to these things? So what I hope to do this morning, as we begin to look at this, as we allow God to shape our minds, that we would not be unaware, that we would basically move from a realm of ignorance or uh, unawareness into a place where we are able to begin to be aware so that we know how to combat these things and begin to be part of God's uh, new work that God is wanting to bring about healing and restoration, uh, not only in our lives personally, but through our lives. See, this is, this is why this is so important, is that the gospel really is at, at stake here or at the root of all this. In other words, Paul's not just simply saying, hey, beware of spiritual warfare just because. Paul's like, beware of spiritual warfare because uh, the, the devil is always trying to undo God's restorative healing work not only in your life as an individual, but through your life into the lives of other people. In other words, the gospel is what's driving all of this. That that God has begun a good work, and he will continue that good work, and he wants to complete that good work, but somewhere between beginning and completion are all of these forces of anti-creation that are at work trying to undermine and undo and sabotage and wreak havoc over your life. Do you see that? That's what... Paul and all these other New Testament writers want us to be aware of. Before we jump in, I want to um, give a little quote and kind of a little bit of a shout-out to a, a great book that I've actually had a lot of help of and from over the years, uh, a guy by the name of Thomas Brooks. He's a Puritan. Um, he, that means he's dead. So and most of the best books are written by dead guys. But um, this guy wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan Devices. In fact, you can actually go on uh, Amazon right now. You can download this book on Kindle for like 99 cents. It's super cheap. 
um, or go to the parable. I don't know how much it is there. But um, anyways, he, he said something in, by way in this book that's always been helpful for me. Is he describes that one of the ways in which the devil works is he, uh, he baits a hook. Now, if you think of it this way, um, I mean, I'm not a huge like fisherman or anything like that, but uh, I know some of you thought I was, but um, I'm just kidding. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is like it, it, the tendency is, is you know, fish, I don't think necessarily look at a hook and be like, I want a hook. That's why you got to put bait on it because the fish actually don't go up and bite the hook. They actually bite the bait that's on the hook. In the same way, uh, Thomas Brooks describes, this is how Satan works with us, the devil works, is he baits whatever hook it is in our lives and then tries to get us, but he uses different bait for each one of us. And the different types of bait that he uses ultimately appeals to our sensibilities. And the moment when we bite that and uh, we're reeled in, we're caught. And this is exactly what he tries to do. But he describes the bait oftentimes appealing to our sinfulness. Our sin nature are these uh, inordinate desires that we have. Not that they're necessarily all bad, but what happens is when we, when we bite these things, we're reeled in, we're caught. So here's what he said. Sin is a very deceitful and bewitching nature. It will kiss the soul and look enticing to the soul and yet betray the soul. Yet the bewitched soul that sin is, uh, tell the bewitched soul that sin is a viper that will certainly kill, often, secretly, insensibly, eternally, yet the bewitched soul cannot and will not cease from sin. So in other words, the point that he's making is that we have this propensity once we're bit by this viper, once we're trapped in this uh, trap, that we, we can't get rid of the sin because sin actually becomes something that we desire. So we, we want to sin. We sin because it's something that we find desirable. So he even described, I love the word that he uses. It's kind of this old school word by describing it as being bewitched. In other words, you're, you're enchanted. You're swept up off your feet. There's this power that it has over you. And really what he goes on to say is what will set you free, it's actually the same thing that sets everyone free in every single, like, fairy tale you've ever watched. So if you think of like uh, Sleeping Beauty, like she was uh, bewitched by, you know, the, I don't know, the, the witch, wicked witch, whatever she's, I don't even know. I'm, I'm, I mean, I know I've got two daughters. And I, don't, I still always forget these like female version of fairy tales and stuff like that. Maybe it's not female. Sorry if I offended you there. But point of the matter is she's like sleeping, right? That's what I'm trying to get to. She can't wake up out of her sleep, all right? That's my point. But what she needs is something to undo her sleepingness, her sleeping soul, and she needs something of great love is what's ultimately going to wake her up and rouse her out of her slumber. And this is really, in a lot of ways, kind of a, a, a picture of the gospel, that we, as human beings, are trapped. We're stuck. And yet what happens is we need something. We need a greater love to sweep us off our feet, to grab a hold of our heart, to bring life into our lives in our brokenness. And this is what the gospel promises and so what Thomas Brooks is saying is that until uh, this cycle is broken or this enchantment is broken, ultimately by understanding the gospel message, uh, then we just remain in this cycle of seeing the bait, eating the bait, getting stuck, being trapped, constantly in this cycle of sabotage and brokenness and destruction. Do you see those patterns in your life? Have you ever seen those patterns in your life? Have you ever observed those patterns in your life? Well, this is what the Bible describes as being a slave, actually, to sin. And Jesus wants to set people free from that. This is what the gospel is all about. So, as we begin to jump in this, uh, begin to take a look at this, um, one of the things I've mentioned over the past couple weeks as we've been trying to unpack this is trying to make a distinction between what I described as common demonic and blatant demonic. 
some uh, blatant demonic, I'll get to that in a moment here, but common demonic, the way that I would describe this, uh, I have a little bit of a definition, I think I'll throw this slide up in a second here, but the definition that I kind of used to describe this was uh, really that common demonic is frequently occurring actions that are proven to, be, that are proven to cause brokenness, yet we grow accustomed to them, and often adjust our lives around them. So let me give an example of these. One of the very first things we looked at that is actually demonic in nature, that Paul describes as one of the, uh, the attacks of the devil, are lies. That Jesus even describes lies as being sort of the native language of the devil. So if you think of it this way, like what language does the devil speak? Well, he speaks lies. He's always lying. It's like, for example, we sang a song earlier, you know, your love never fails and never give up, gives up and never runs out of me. Like, why do we sing songs like that? Well, the reason why we sing songs like that is because we are always prone to believe the very opposite, right? We're always prone that God's love has given up on you, that God's love has run out on you, because that's the world we live in. We live in a world of conditions. We live in a world where people will be like, I'll love you. I'll be there for you as long as dot, 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 whatever that is. I'll be there for you until, you know, you let me down or you betray me. And then all bets are off. We live in that world. And as long as we have these, like, mutual uh, relationships with these other people and they're committing to us and we're committing to them, then we would say, okay, life is, like, going semi-decent. But the moment everything gets appended, turned upside down, we begin to like, wonder, like, what in the world is going on with our lives? The people that we thought were going to be there for us forever have actually betrayed us and turned against us. And we oftentimes begin to think, well, maybe God's the exact same way. And what I'm saying is that these are lies that the devil loves to get us to feed off of. This is the bait that he puts on the hook for us. And the moment we begin to believe those things the moment we begin to put God in the same categories as every other person who's betrayed us or wounded us or hurt us. And those people that betray, hurt, wound, we have a tendency to close our hearts off of, to them. So when we put and project those same types of uh, attitudes to God, and then we begin to approach him, we're like, you know, I, I, I know I need something deeper in my life, but I, I don't want to open my heart up to God. You realize how lethal that is? Like, that, that is the definition of, of eternal death, to close your heart to God. Whereas the exact opposite is to open your heart to God is, by definition, eternal life. To open your heart up to God is, by definition, eternal life. But the devil loves to lie to us. We believe these lies. But again, here's my point. We live in a world in which these things are uh, frequent. They're frequent, as I described in that last slide. We'll go, let's go back to that last slide real quick. So these are so frequent, so common in this world. In other words, lies, for example, are so common amongst, among, amidst other things, uh, unrighteousness, dis- disintegration, disbelief, all these other things that we describe, we'll look at. They're so common within our world that we just tend to think that, you know, for me to function within this world, I've got to adapt to those same types of features. I've got to adopt those same types of actions. So what happens is because we look at the larger world that's functioning around us and it's filled with lies, and everybody's lying to each other, then we begin to realize, or we begin to think that unless, unless I lie, I'll never get ahead. Unless I lie, I'll never, you know, graduate. Unless I lie and, you know, exercise deception, I'm never going to get, you know, promoted or recognized. Or unless I lie, I'm never going to really get the girlfriend or the boyfriend of my dreams or get married. I, I've got to lie. I've got to somehow adapt to this, this, this broken system around me, and it is what it is, and I'll just deal with it. 
So here's the problem. We tend to believe that this world, the way it is, is the way that I've got to be. And this is the really, really good news of the gospel, is the gospel comes and says, no, the way this world is will at some point run its course and it will end in destruction. But the good news is that this is not the world the way that it will always be, but there's a new world that's being birthed. There's a new uh, order of creation which God is bringing, and it has nothing to do with lies. In fact, if anything, it has to do with truth. That truth comes in, and that truth sets you free so that you don't have to simply buy into the system of lies manufactured, made by, created by the father of lies, the devil, to survive. In fact... I would even go so far as to say that if you live according to that standard, that mentality, then you will go the way of that system, which ultimately leads to death. Your lies at some point will find you out. And we've all kind of watched movies like that or seen storylines like that where, you know, somebody's trying to juggle, you know, three or four, six different lifestyles and uh, mentalities and uh, projections of who they are. And at some point they get found out and everything kind of comes crashing around them. But the point of the matter is, is that these ideas are actually led by, governed by the devil. So the common demonic are things that are so common within our culture, we tend to not really think of them as actually being influenced by demonic activity. But what I want you to begin to think today, this morning, is that it is governed by, led by, influenced by demonic activity. And so what I would hope to get you to begin to agree in is that by recognizing these things, that you would look at, let's say, for example, if you are swept up in a lifestyle of lying, that you would look at that and say, this is demonic, and it's not life-giving for you to repent from that and then turn to Jesus, who is life-giving and who is ultimately truth. And that to undo those things, this is how we undo these demonic activities of the devil, is to continue, it's basically to say yes to Jesus and his kingdom and no to the kingdom that fosters this lifestyle of lies and death. Does that make sense so far? So common demonic are those things that are so frequent and their occurrences within our society and culture that we just simply were just like, well, it's just the way things are, so I will just adapt my life to just accept that's the way it is, and I might, I might even participate in it as well. And what Jesus ultimately is going to say is that is ultimately what leads to death. And you need to be saved from that. And the way that you get saved from that is to say yes to another kingdom, a more lasting kingdom, and that's the kingdom that Jesus comes to bring, to give. The second thing we'll take a look at is, not today though, is blatant demonic, and I'll just say this real quickly, is that this is activity that's less frequent, it causes overwhelming brokenness, and leaves us feeling powerless. So one of the things that we'll take a look at in the weeks to come is one of the key examples of this is torment. You'll see like examples uh, where Jesus goes and he hangs out with some guy at a, at a, um, at a grave site, and this guy like literally lives at this grave site, he's cutting himself with rock, he's literally tormented. Literally tormented. But Jesus says that he's actually tormented by devils. So demonic activity is going on, but it's actually making its way into his physical body. So he's cutting himself. He's trying to inflict pain upon himself. And so this is, this is like extreme type stuff. And most of the time, it's less frequent within our lives. So some of you may find yourselves actually engaged in moments of extreme torment where your mind is like overwhelmed and overtaken by uh, thoughts where you can't get out of bed, you are literally paralyzed, in a sense, uh, uh, emotionally by uh, these types of torment. And it, they're less frequent, but when they happen, you feel absolutely, completely powerless to these things. And, and you may look at those things and be like, I feel there's a demonic or some sort of oppression over me. Well, the Bible would say that, that yes, perhaps that, that is demonic in nature, 
It's oppressive, and it's very blatant. You know it, you recognize it, you see it, and yet at the same time you realize your complete uh, inability to really do anything about it. Um, so you think. So um, let's jump in and begin to take a look at some of the common demonics. So last week and the weeks before, I'm just going to go through this very fastly, uh, fast. Uh, we looked at, first of all, lies as being common demonic. Um, we looked at unrighteousness, actions, uh, attitudes, lifestyles of unrighteousness. These are our various forms in which the devil destroys and attacks. Uh, disintegration, meaning uh, the opposite of peace. Um, if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to maybe check out the message online. Um, we have it there for free download. Uh, disintegration, the opposite of peace. Disbelief, uh, uh, destruction. All of these things are various forms of demonic activity that are very common within our life. And for the most part, we would just simply say, well, that's 6 o'clock news. Because it's so common like that. We're just, isn't that just the way things are? And what I'm saying is that, no, that's not the way things are intended by God to be. And this is where Christians come in. Christians are people that have, that, have, that have been taken out of that system and have been given a new kingdom, a new life, a new way, so that rather than lies being what defines you, truth is what defines you. Rather than disintegration, falling apart at the seams, you find that your life now becomes defined by shalom, peace. God begins to reheal you and restore you and transform you. Rather than a life that's kind of riddled by disbelief and dis, uh, rather than trusting in God, our lives are defined by as being people of faith. We trust Yahweh. We trust God to do what God says God will do, even in spite of the fact that there are moments in time where we're not really sure that God is even really near or close or doing things. We wrestle through that. We fight to trust and believe that God is actually doing something in spite of what all the headlines seem to indicate. So let's jump in, take a look at a couple ones, uh, a couple of the ones that we'll take a look at here this morning. First of all, we'll jump right in. Now, again, like I said earlier, even though we uh, are, are intersecting at the book of Ephesians, um, we are following a theme throughout um, all sorts of other areas without, uh, within, and without, or within the Bible, I should say. Um, the one that we'll take a look at that's common, demonic in terms of its activity is pride, uh, a sense of arrogance is one of the elements in which the Bible describes as actually being satanic or demonic in nature. And we actually get this from uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 14. I'll read it to you. Um, and it says this. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn? You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars, and I will set my throne and high, and I will sit on the mount of, assembly, of the assembly in the far reaches of the north, and I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the Most High, but you were brought down to Sheol, down to the farthest reaches of the pit. And most scholars actually believe that this is a reference to um, Satan, that prior to uh, his downfall, if you would, he was uh, this angel that was beautiful and great, and uh, all sorts of um, kind of mythological types, concepts have, have been built around this. The Bible doesn't really say too much about this, so We've got to be careful uh, to not enter into a lot of a speculation. But a lot of believe that this is actually a reference to Satan. And what had happened was at some point that rather than submitting himself to God, loving God, worshiping God, he basically said, I, I think I can be like God. I can do the things like God. I can be like God. I can be powerful like God. And in a lot of ways, this is sort of what we as humanity, as a humanity, wrestle with, is this sense of arrogance and pride, is that we basically say that rather than us being creatures dependent upon God, we want to be godlike and independent of everybody. Isn't that how we oftentimes live? In fact, in a lot of ways, this is sort of ingrained into, you know, your little apple pie Americanism, is that we tend to think we, are, we actually, who we are based upon 
our independence. I mean, we even have a day which we celebrate independence. But the point of the matter is, is that's ingrained into who we are as human beings, especially in the West. We tend to think we don't need anybody. We are totally independent from anybody. We can do anything we set our mind to. We can do anything the way that we want, how we want, when we want. We don't need anybody. And this is the great lie. Because ultimately, we need God. And if we carry the idea of we don't need anybody out to its furthest extent, you know what type of culture we actually become? We've become a culture of consumers that just simply uses each other. Wait a minute, that's today. I mean, this is the reality. This is the, the culture in which we live in. And a lot of it boils down to this hidden sea that's at the very root of it all, which is called pride. That we think that everybody there around us is for our own utility, meaning we use you, we use each other, in order somehow to make ourselves great. And a culture that lives like that is a culture that will ultimately be crushed and ruined. And yet, the opposite of that is, rather than pride, is humility. Here's a couple other examples, is that what Paul is describing, what the Old Testament seems to describe, is that pride is actually a characteristic trait that's not of God, it's actually of the devil. So in other words, when we begin to see pride maybe crop up within our own hearts, this should be a warning sign to us. We should be very careful and very alert of this and take it really seriously. But oftentimes, we don't take it seriously. We tend to look at it and we'll just be like, well, I'm just overconfident, or I just have a lot of self-confidence. In fact, you know, we even have language like that within our culture, like, well, really what you need is more self-confidence or more self-love. And the fact of the matter is, I think when most people describe self-confidence or self-esteem, what they're really saying is just, you know, have confidence in the fact that, you know, your mom taught you how to, you know, give a public speech or you can, you can be somebody. It's really just an idea, a pep talk, and just have some confidence. Don't be so overwhelmed by your lack of confidence. But really, if you take it to its fullest extent, it's a tendency to kind of go to such an extreme whereby we become very arrogant and prideful. We begin to believe sort of our own press clippings. Like, I really am great, which means everybody else around me is not so great. I, I am far better, far superior, far supreme over them because of my you know, actions, my abilities, the things I can do. And that has a tendency, as we elevate ourselves, we're pushing everybody else down by finding flaws. And this is something we've got to be really careful of because it's actually lethal and it's very unlike God and very like the devil. So here's a couple other examples of this. Psalm uh, 10 verse 4 says this, In his pride the wicked does not seek God. In, his, in all of his thoughts there's no room for God. So if you think of it this way, someone who is prideful doesn't really need God. Now, logically, why would that be the case? Well, because if you think of it this way, if, if I'm capable of sustaining myself, or at least I think I'm capable of sustaining myself, and making something or somebody of my life without the exterior help of anybody or external help from anybody, um, why would I need God? I can do it all. And that's really what the psalmist is saying. But again, you realize that thinking is actually delusional. Because we really are not as in control of our lives as we tend to think we are. I mean, there are things that we have absolutely no control of in our lives that when they come into our lives, we're powerless over, them, over those things. And that's why we need God to help and strengthen and, and, and lead. But a prideful person basically says, I don't, I don't need God. Uh, Proverbs, Proverbs uh, verse 16, verse 5, or chapter 16, verse 5 says this, The Lord detests all the proud of heart, uh, 
And the idea here is that there are some things that God actually detests. In this instance, God detests that sense of arrogance, um, the sense of pomp. And here's the amazing thing, if you think of it this way. One of the things that we love as human beings, we love people that are, that are great, but come across as if they are really full of love. So let me give you an example. If you've ever met somebody that's maybe like a movie star or very you know, good-looking or very talented, uh, really uh, uh, you know, exceptional musician or something like that, and if you've ever had a conversation with them and they come off really arrogant and rude, it's, it's easy for you to kind of walk away and be like, what an idiot. And like you have no respect for them now other than the fact that they're really good at their music. But because we tend to walk away from experiences like that and we think, well, I mean, look how amazing they are. Everybody worships them as kind of a demigod. Uh, and of course, that's, they're going to be just condescending and rude. But what happens if you ever met somebody who's exceptionally good at what they do and they're really kind and they pause and they remember your name? Like, how amazing is that? They're like, oh, yeah, nice to greet you. And they say your name. And you're like, oh, my God, you just met me like five minutes ago. And you know my name. Like, this is amazing. Like, because we're blown away by greatness that's been co-opted by humility. We come to expect greatness to be co-opted by arrogance. But when we see a sense of greatness commingled, working together with humility, we are, we are stunned and blown away. This is one of the reasons why God is so great. Because not only is he absolutely beautiful, almighty, all-powerful, but he's equally humble. And he comes to us, and he knows your name. He hasn't forsaken you. He hasn't forgotten you. He knows who you are. He knows what you're going through in your pain. And he calls you to come. So arrogance, pride, all of these things are elements that are not traits of God, but traits of the devil. Second one is sexual sin. Sexual sin, or sexual temptation, if you want to think of it this way. And I'll give you an example of how this kind of plays out in a second here. Um, second, or 1 Corinthians 7, 5 says, Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. So again, what Paul is basically talking to is married couples within the church that are basically taking a, uh, a break from sex. Um, and so he's saying, if you guys are going to do that, that's great. You know, make sure you pray and seek God and do it for just a short period of time. But then he goes on and kind of finishes with, and I realize it's kind of a strange verse and whatnot, but um, Paul's giving some practical advice here. He says, but when you come together again, uh, uh, do so, so then you'll come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So really what Paul is kind of engaging in is sort of this larger principle is that um, temptation may overwhelm you, and this is actually somehow harnessed by, influenced by uh, the devil. Now, let's just pause for a moment and think about this on a, on a larger societal scale. And I, I mean, I realize in a lot of ways we live in a culture that is so highly over-sexualized. I mean, you can't, you know, it's, it's kind of frustrating. One of the things I would love to do as a family, we love to sit down and watch shows and TV shows or whatever it is, uh, as a family snuggling on the couch. But it's, it's really hard to find shows that are not overly sexualized. Um, to where you got to fast forward or pause or kind of talk about that a little bit because there's so much garbage in our culture that just tends to view as normal or there's with great normalcy the idea of just highly sexualized behavior. And here's the thing again. Again, this is common demonic. We tend to think, well, that's just the way the world works. But let me say this. If you engage with that mentality, just be like, okay, if that's the way that the world works, everybody's highly sexualized, and if I become highly sexualized, meaning I just sort of indiscriminately have sex with anybody, whenever I want, whenever I'm feeling, however I'm feeling, and just sort of let go of any inhibitions and just kind of engage because that's how culture does it and that's what other people are telling me to just do, 
then I'll somehow live. But the reality is, is you don't live. The reality is, is that post those experiences, you feel defiled, you feel broken, you feel used, you feel cheap. I mean, we live in a culture that in so many ways has objectified, especially women. It's just simply reducing them nothing more than to a mere set of body parts. And this is one of the things that fuels porn. It's one of the reasons why, on the one hand, um, you know, as a culture, there's all sorts of dialogue. Be like, you know, is porn okay? Is it good? Is it helpful? Is it really actually uh, destructive to our culture and our society at large? And then you have others that are like, well, you know, it makes a lot of money. And, you know, there's people that get, you know, so it's good business. It's good capital business, so on, so on and so forth. So there's all these, all these questions about it. But at the end of the day, one of the things that they're becoming more and more aware of this, in this modern world is one of the things that actually fuels and funds and moves the porn industry ahead are women are being abducted at very young ages, sex traffic, and forced into positions and situations where they don't have any say over it. And they made to look really nice and really happy as if they're enjoying these types of things. And that goes on the internet and somehow gets conveyed as porn and what I'm saying is that at the end of the day, it breeds a culture of sheer brokenness. And there's something extremely demonic about it. Do you see that? Are you aware of that? I mean, again, it's easy for us in our culture to be like, well, it's just normal. It, it is just what it is. I mean, it's just, we watch television. There's going to be all sorts of highly overly sexualized uh, features and highly objection, uh, 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 objectified women on those things. And it just is what it is. So maybe as a human being, I've got to somehow to fit into this thing, to be part of this culture and society. I've got to just do that. And what Paul is saying is that behind all of it is some sort of demonic activity that's actually stealing away, destroying, usurping human flourishing. And in this place, creating a deep sense of Defilement, brokenness, languishing. Now that being said, sex is not evil. It's a very good thing. And God created it to be used in very strategic fashions to where it actually brings great flourishing. But if you take it and you, unpro- you, you, you remove it from its situation and you begin to somehow hijack it and put your own sensibilities into it, then you're prone to bring about destruction. And this is the culture in which we live in. And what Paul is saying, what fuels that is actually demonic activity. So we've got to be aware of that. Third thing, and I'll finish here, is bitterness is the third form in which uh, the devil begins to attack. These are devices, strategy of the devil. So again, in summary, what we looked at today, pride, one of the devices of the devil, sexual sin or sexual temptation is a device of the devil. Thirdly, finally, today is bitterness is another form uh, which the devil uses. I'll read a couple passages. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 says this. It says, do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil and let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you among with, uh, along with all malice. So the point that Paul is making in this, in this Ephesians passage is he says, don't give any opportunity to the devil. In other words, uh, don't allow the devil to have kind of a foothold. And that's what the word opportunity means. Don't give the, the, the devil an actual foothold. So think of it, um, some of you guys are into like climbing, you know, rock climbing, whatever. And in order for you to be an effective rock climber, you've got to have either a foothold or, I don't know what you call it, a handhold or so, something like that. Because you can't scale a, a, a big, long, uh, you know, flat slab of granite that's wet. Like, you, you can't do that. You need something 
to hold on to in order to scale it, to climb it. In the same way, Satan uh, is looking for opportunity to scale you, to, to, to get an opportunity to bring destruction upon our lives. And what Paul is saying is that don't give the devil opportunity. And this is all within the context of saying, don't let any bitterness dwell up within you. And then that leads ultimately, if you think of it this way, bitterness is like the seed. It's like the seed that gets planted in your heart, but then that seed, when it begins to germinate, begins to grow, it begins to sort of express itself or expand itself into uh, wrath or anger and clamor and slander. Slander is talk, constantly talking about the event or talking about the person or talking about the things that have happened. And Paul says that all of this actually begins with bitterness. And it's actually a root created by the devil. It's an occasion of the devil. It's an act of of the devil to begin to plant those things within us. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7 describes it this way. Forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. So a little bit of context. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it's a really long book, and there's some all sorts of events and things and situations that are going on. And there's a guy, doesn't, I'm not even sure if the guy's actually named, but there's a guy in the church living in the area of Corinth, and there's a problem that gets reported to Paul. Apparently this guy, you know, is basically sleeping with his mother-in-law. I know it seems kind of nasty, but that was going on in the church. And some of us kind of think like, oh my gosh, I thought the early church was like pure and holy. Uh, Actually, the church was a church of saints, but they also had just as much sin as we do today. So uh, I know, shocking. But the point of the matter is, is that this guy that Paul gets information about basically writes 1 Corinthians and says, here's what you need to do. If this guy's actually sleeping with his wife or sleeping with his mother-in-law, I should say, he needs to be uh, uh, confronted with it and if he refuses to, uh, to repent and turn away from it, if he's giving occasion for sexual sin to dominate him rather than being a part of the community, he needs to be uh, put away from the community or asked not to be part of the community until he repents from that. Second Corinthians, what begins to happen is it would appear as if this guy actually repented from his sin, and rather than being warmly accepted and welcomed back to the table, welcomed back in their fellowship, uh, the, the church was, the larger group of the people within the church were basically like, you know, we don't want you around, you're a sinner, you're a loser, uh, you're kind of, uh, you know, the bad for the morale around here, so, so keep away from our whole deal. And what Paul writes, he says, look, guys, he, he's asked for forgiveness. Forgive him, comfort him, or he's going to be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Verse 8, he says, reaffirm your love to him. Verse 11, he says, so that you may not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So I want you to think about this. The context in which Paul actually says that passage in verse 11, that we are not outwitted by Satan, but we we don't want to be ignorant of his designs, is actually in the context of bitterness. It's in the context of bitterness. And think of it this way. What Paul is basically saying is one of the ways in which you know that you don't have bitterness in your heart is if you are able to forgive and comfort this person. And what Paul describes is that all of this Forgiveness and comfort are actual expressions, if you would, of love that's been reaffirmed. So in other words, love is not just simply being like, I love you, it's all good. Love is actually saying, not only do I forgive you, but I'm going to comfort you. We're going to hang out. We're going to connect. I'm going to have you over to my house for dinner. We're going to go get some coffee. We're going to work through this because at the end of the day, you are not my enemy. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're going to work through this. I don't want you to be overtaken by excessive sorrow and pain. It feels as if you have been ostracized because what the gospel says is that you are not ostracized. You are welcome to the table. So therefore, we will demonstrate gospel theology by our actions and say we will welcome you to this table. In other words, we will not let offenses and bitterness be what defines us. 
We'll allow the gospel to do that. So think of it this way. What an offense is, an offense really, uh, or bitterness really is an offense. And the reason why bitterness kind of gets into our heart is we allow this offense, this offense to come overtake us. So what an offense is really is, if you think of it this way, um, it's like this, you sin against me and I hold an offense against you. So that's actual, but it can also be perceived. In other words, I think you sin against me and I I hold an offense against you. So both actual and perceived offenses still have the same effect. It leads to bitterness in my heart which leads to alienation, which leads to anger and malice and clamor and you know, all these other words that Paul describes, which ultimately leads to these strongholds, footholds of the devil. Escalio, do you see areas of bitterness in your heart as being actual footholds for Satan? You should. And to be aware of those things. So the question is, what do we do? Well, what we need to do is we need to be able to see what Jesus has done to set us free. And this is where we have to turn, is what we see with Jesus is Jesus comes into our life to undo the works of the devil. Jesus even describes that. He says, my job is to really undo the works of the devil. That his aim was to take away that which Satan has destroyed. So if you want to think of it this way, your life, all of our lives, to some degree, are part of this sweep of history where God wants to bring redemption and healing into your life. But simultaneously, there's an ongoing narrative that's trying to undo and undermine every good thing that God's trying to do. Do you see those things? And our response needs to be one in which we turn to Jesus and recognize that what Jesus does is he brings healing. We see with Jesus, for example, when Jesus was in the wilderness, 40 days, 40 nights, he was actually tempted. And while he's being tempted, the devil is constantly coming to him and you know, saying all sorts of things to him. But what Jesus basically does each time is he denies what the devil has to say. You need to know that one of the very first uh, temptations the devil throws at him is he says, you know, turn these stones into bread, and therefore you'll survive, you'll thrive. And Jesus quotes back scripture to him. He says, no, no, man shall not live by you know, bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so really what a Christian is, is a Christian, as I mentioned at the very beginning of the service, that really what a Christian is, is a Christian is one who basically says, this world is constantly telling me to live by the bread that I make, to live by the bread that we make as individual people, that that bread that we create, the life that we create is what will sustain us, is what will bring about flourishing our lives. But what a Christian is, is he says, I'm going to turn against that, and I'm not going to follow that storyline and that narrative, and I'm going to turn to the storyline and the narrative of the Bible that basically says that every life truly lives from the mouth of God. That's how life is given to us, to turn to Jesus, to turn to the word that's become flesh, the word that has been spoken to us. In the same way as Jesus overcame temptation, God helps us by trusting, looking to him to overcome these temptations. Now, I realize some of these things that we talk about here today may be heavy for some of you guys. And maybe for some of you, they're so heavy, they overwhelm you, they sweep over you to the point where your soul is crushed and oppressed by these things. And what I want to challenge you to think about and understand is that it's one of the reasons why the, why the Lord has given a, a church, a body, where we are a family. We work together. We help each other. The Bible says to carry one another's burdens. A church that just simply gets together and hangs out sings a bunch of songs, listens to a couple sermons, and then goes home, but does not really engage in the rough, challenging work of carrying each other's burdens is a church that's really not operating and walking within love. 
the very love which rescued them and carries them. And as we sing, as we finish, I'm going to invite you, any of you, that just kind of feel that sense of burden upon your soul to turn to people and have them pray for you. We'll have some people actually off to the side or by the cross that will be there, happy to pray for you. And we'll finish by partaking of communion. We have communion in the back on three different areas to partake of the communion, to remind ourselves that this is how Jesus gave us life. This is how Jesus came to undo our brokenness. Ironically, it was by him being broken so that we who are broken can actually, shockingly, be made whole. This is what God is up to. He wants to make you whole. This is what the devil is up to. He wants to undo you. Are you aware of the devices that he constantly throws at you? Are you aware of the grace that God has put on display for you? Let's turn to him and we pray. The guys will come up and we'll close in the song. If you'd like prayer, we people off to the side. We'll have some rugs in front. If you guys want to just get on your faces before God and sing to him. Um, let's respond. Why don't we all stand? We'll sing and we'll close, okay? So I'm going to pray. We'll sing. Respond. God, uh, we thank you for your love. And Lord, right now we want to respond uh, in song. We want to respond by partaking of communion. By reminding ourselves, Lord, of what you've done and what you've gone through to rescue us. God, we want to respond by faith saying that we trust you and we turn to you. And we don't want to be people that say we live by bread alone. We want to be people that say we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So God, let these songs basically be a a unified testimony of the fact that we, we hold to you. We trust in you. You are the first. You are the last. You are the beginning. You are the end. Our lives are given meaning, purpose, and able to be sustained because you are, because you're God, because you're good. We want to thank you now in response.